Good afternoon, everyone. This is Pam Montgomery from the Organization of Nature Evolutionaries. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. And we have Larch Hansen with us this afternoon from Maine, and he is a seaweed harvester from the northeastern coast of Maine, and it's a family business that he's been running up there for, gosh, I don't know, up to 40 years, I think, um, in his home in Steuben, Maine. So he does seaweed harvesting, and he's also, besides an amazing ocean person and being out there on the water, he also is a, a carpenter. He just got done telling me he just got done putting strapping on his metal roof that he put down, so he just got down from 40 feet in the air, so here he is on the ground to talk to us, and he's a body worker, and he's a cook, and a gardener, just to, just to name a few of his many, many talents. So we are so excited to have Larch with us today. Thanks for joining us, Larch. Hi. It's good to be here, and it's good to be down on the ground, nice and safe again. Yes, I'm so glad that you are safe. So, Marge, tell us how you how you got started with harvesting seaweed. Well, there's the short answer and there's the long answer. Uh, people will say, what brought you to Maine? And I'll say, a BMW motorcycle. And that's the short answer. <laughs> but the long answer is that I grew up in Minnesota, and I sat in boats with my dad, fishing. He was an old Navy man. He had been a navigator in the Navy during World War II. And that's where I really learned to love boats, was being in boats with my dad. And then Mm -hmm. uh, when I was 20, I decided I wanted a complete change of culture and climate. And I went to Florida and I lived on the Gulf of Mexico. And I swam in the ocean every day. And then one summer, I decided I wanted to follow the Atlantic Ocean, the coast, all the way up to Maine. And that was when the BMW came in handy. And I went from Florida to Maine in three days, sitting on a steel horse. (laughs) And really what I was doing was I was dowsing, trying to find a place where there was fresh air, good water, and a dark night sky. Mm. And I had to go beyond Acadia National Park, another hour's drive before I found those conditions. And that's where I settled. So I learned Mm. to love water in Minnesota, and I learned to love ocean in Florida, and then I settled in Maine. And when I got to Maine, I said, well, this is kind of like Minnesota with the ocean. I'm living in forest. I'm just a few hundred yards away from the water. And that combination has held me here. I've had some side trips, but I've been here since 1970. And now there's a map inside me of all the underwater seaweed beds within a five-mile radius of my home. So I've worked within five miles for 45 years. And the reason I did that was so that if the motor ever quits, I can row home. Mm-hmm. And I've never had to row home. The motor has always brought me home. But I do like to row. And I'm 71, and I'm still enjoying the work. I take apprentices every year. And now we're transitioning to becoming a retreat center. So in the wintertime, Nina and I will travel and teach structural body work, 
to amateurs and to therapists of all stripes. And then people come and live with us in the wintertime and work on their bodies, get all the kinks combed out. So between the seaweed work, which is mostly in the springtime, that's when the plants are in their prime, mm. and then opening up to visitors in the summertime, I'm not isolated at all. Uh, if listeners want to take a look at photos of where I live, and you've got a computer in front of you, you can go to theseaweedman.com and open up the gallery. There's probably 50 or 60 photos and a lot of captions. So that'll help people to understand what it is that I'm looking at. Okay. Got a question? Okay. Well, good. Thank you for um, for telling us how you how you got to how you got to the coast of Maine and how you're working with the seaweed. So tell us, tell us some about this, all these lovely kinds of seaweeds that you harvest and, um, you know, what types and which types that, that folks should be including in their, in their diets, like on a regular basis. And like, let's hear some about the seaweed. Mm-hmm. Okay. The plants have seasons, very much like plants in a garden. And they're very much like wild herbs. They all grow in the same places year after year. So if you're an herbalist and you go to a field, you kind of know if you've been there before where you're going to find goldenrod, where you're going to find burdock. Uh, It's the same here. I can look at a chart and I can have a hunch about what I'll find if I go to exposed surf on the outside of the islands or quiet sheltered seaweed beds up in the bay. Uh, What happens for me is in April, I go out partway down the bay, and I harvest bladder rack. And bladder rack is used for people who have underactive thyroids. So that's a good way for me to start out the season. Just take the boats a mile down the shore and make sure everything's working. Harvest bladder rack, come back and dry it. We use indoor seaweed dryers, so we have better control of humidity and light and heat. I have four dryers. It's like walking into a room that's 16 feet wide, 24 feet long, sort of like a greenhouse. It's solar, but there's a wood stove in the back for gray weather, for backup heat. And the typical dryer can dry 30 bushels of seaweed within 48 hours of harvest at temperatures less than 85. And that's because the ceiling is full of fans. There are 24 fans in each dryer. So there's a lot of air moving through. And it's mostly air movement that dries the seaweeds. Uh, Bladder rack looks really beautiful, black, dark in April. And April is about as soon as I want to go out there and work because in February, March, it's still freezing. Water's freezing. I'm made of water. Larch freezes. So I start in April, and uh, bladder rack is used uh, to help people who are having trouble with stagnant metabolism. If I get an old granny who calls me up and she says, hey, my hands and feet are warm again. My thyroid came back to normal. I just weaned myself off synthetic hormones. Well, that's the kind of news I want to hear. So if people want to use Bladderac, what I say to them is you've got to find a doctor who will measure your baseline thyroid levels 
And then if you're going to wean yourself off synthetic hormones, you start by taking three to five dry grams a day, either as tea or in soup, and do that for a month. And during that month, measure your thyroid levels and see what happens. A lot of people will find that all of a sudden they flip from hypo to hyper. The thyroid kicks in again. You have to have thyroid tissue to work with. If your thyroid has been removed, you can't do it. This is something that affects your thyroid tissue. It's kind of like if you took the molecule of T4 hormone, cut it in half. That's the compound that's in bladderwrack. So the thyroid gets a boost every time you use bladderwrack. Now, bladderwrack is medicine. I'm not going to go any further and tell you much more about it. I'm more interested in the types that are food that help people in their daily life. And so if you really want to integrate seaweeds into your life, I suggest you go to our website, get the cookbook, and get a variety pack, and that'll work for you. Now, what we do after bladderwrack is we start harvesting kelp. Kelp takes four years to grow from being a very small plant to being a plant that's up on the surface 10 feet long. There was one year when Smithsonian Research had a vessel on our bay, and they spent the entire summer collecting specimens and measuring plants. And so I asked them, how do you measure the growth of a kelp plant? And they said, oh, that's simple. Just look at the place where the stipe or the stem attaches to the frond. That's where cell division is happening. Punch a hole right there and see how fast that hole stretches, migrates down towards the tip of the frond. That's how fast a plant is growing. So I started tying little ribbons on plants and punching holes and watching, and that's how I discovered that it took about four years for a kelp plant to become mature up on the surface. And then in the fifth year, it usually got torn out by ice storms. So when I work with kelp plants, I'm taking plants at low tide. I'm in a boat reaching over the side, and I'm taking plants that are three years and four years old. The baby plants that are one and two years old are too deep for me to reach. They come up to surface after three years. In the fourth year, they're very long, up on top. So my kelp beds are in rotation. When I harvest in the springtime, I'll count loads that are on the surface. I'll take what I think is the right amount. I want to protect the density of the beds. I don't want to change the light conditions. And this is an art. This is something that has to be taught from master to apprentice. That's why I say apprenticeships take three years. Apprentices get in the boat. They learn the motions. They come back the second year. They look at the kelp beds. They see the impact of what we did the year before. And then the third year, they start to understand how long it takes for a kelp bed to regenerate. When I first came here, I went to the tax assessor's office, and I looked at aerial photographs of my bay. The kelp bed showed up on those aerial photographs. Well, I'm happy to report that I'm still working in the same places that I started working back in 1970. In fact, we have more kelp in the bay now 
because they're not dragging for sea urchins. They're not dragging the bottom for scallops. They're not dragging for mussels. And once the draggers went away, kelp started reestablishing itself in places where it usually didn't grow. So when I talked to the Smithsonian researchers, I said, what do you think of our bay? And what they said to me was, you have a wide diversity of life forms. That's an indication of low levels of pollution. So I feel like I've settled in a good place. When I go out there in the springtime and I drop an anchor out by the islands, I can see the anchor going down the bottom 30 feet, and that's very good visibility for that time of year. So uh, a typical day, kelp harvesting means I get up at 3 in the morning, I put on my wetsuit. Uh, at 4 in the morning, I'm headed down the bay. By 5 in the morning, I'm at the kelp beds, and I spend two hours cutting and hauling 2,000 wet pounds. It takes me an hour to get home, and I have my second breakfast. Then I spend the rest of the day hanging up kelp. By 3 in the afternoon, it's done. Two days later, it's going to be dry, and I'm going to have 200 dry pounds. So kelp is 90% water, 10% solids. It's a very short season. It's the last two weeks of May and four weeks of June. Someplace in the last week of May, we'll get a new tide, a new moon tide, or a full moon tide. And that means the water goes out further, and we'll start to harvest Alaria. Alaria is the Atlantic cousin of wakame that grows in the Pacific Ocean. If you look at macrobiotic recipes, you'll see wakame. You can substitute Alaria. Now that Fukushima has happened, I don't eat from the Pacific Ocean at all. I used to eat wild-caught salmon. I don't eat salmon anymore. After Fukushima melted down, Nina and I found that our business doubled. We were a mom-and-pop business that sold $100,000 a year, about $300 a day. Right after Fukushima melted down, we had orders for $7,000 a day because people on the West Coast, California, were concerned about their thyroids. They wanted to make sure that they had adequate iodine in their diet so that their thyroids wouldn't take in radioactive iodine that was being released from Fukushima. We used the physics department at the University of Maine at Orono to test our seaweeds for radionuclides being released from Fukushima. So far, we are free and clear. So I just continue to talk to them and keep doing my work. Now, one of the things that happened when I got on the water here my father had died when I was 10, and I got on the water, and I realized that my father's spirit was close to me. Every time I got in a boat, I could feel him. So I started chanting and praying and asking him to guide me. And once I did that, six people who all had my mother's birthday showed up in my life within six months. All of them were nourishing me, supporting me in my work. One of them was a cancer researcher named Jane Tease. She came to visit me. She brought an herbalist friend. She said, 
look, I'm a scientist. I've got a rational brain. I've brought an herbalist with me. She's got an intuitive brain. We're going to put our heads together, go out with you, see what you do, and we're going to select a seaweed to use in a nutritional study with postmenopausal breast cancer survivors. And that's because I've been reading the Japanese literature. Women who eat a traditional diet in Japan have lower rates of breast cancer. So I said, all right, I'll get you wetsuits, get in the boats. We all went out together, and they selected Alaria for the nutrition study. Well, Jane had the Alaria encapsulated. She gave it to the women. She ran the study. She did the blood work and the urinalysis. And then she sent me a letter, and she said, well, you have strengthened the immune systems of these women. And by the way, I had some capsules left over, and I sent it on to a doctor friend of mine in Africa. So he can try it out on Ebola virus and AIDS. I said, well, that says something. Another one of the people who had my mother's birthday, May 4th, and by now I had asked the astrologers, what is May 4th? And they said, oh, that's the day of nourishing support. Your father has sent you a megadose of your mother's energy, the original mix that you are. Enjoy the ride. So one of the other May 4th people was Candace, and she was helping me raise my sons. That was a lot of work and a lot of support. And Candace said to me, there's a group of healers in Harrington. That's the next village over from where I live. And she said, they don't know you, but they get together every month. And I want to take samples of the seaweeds to this group so they can talk about the energy that's in them. So I gave her samples of everything. I gave her bladderwrack. I gave her kelp. I gave her alaria. I gave her the summer plants, dulse and Irish moss and nori. And she came back from the meeting, and I said, well, what happened? And she said, oh, nothing much. And then she smirked, and I said, so tell me, what happened? And she said, well, really, nothing much, except when the Alaria was in the center of the circle, there was a medical intuitive in the group, a psychic. And she piped up, and she said, does Larch have a father who died when Larch was a boy of cancer? And Candace said, yes. And the intuitive said, well, I feel moved to say that Larch's father's spirit is guiding the group tonight. He would like Larch to know that the Alaria he harvests would have helped to heal his cancer. So I chewed on that. I thought about it. And I said, okay. I asked for guidance. I got it. I'll stay at the work. Now, once people understood that this link was operating between my father's spirit and myself, other people who were channels and intuitives would come up and they'd give me another piece of the message. So it got to the point where if I'm talking to a young fellow who's into computers, I'll just say to him, well, you know, the night my father died, 
I was looking in his eyes. And I downloaded an app. Tibetans would say, I got his mind essence transmitted to me. But let's just say I downloaded an app. And the app is called The Father Legacy. And this app is constantly being upgraded on the cosmic Internet. So anytime I'm willing to be brave and ask an honest question, in other words, log on and say, Dad, would you guide me? You know what people say in traditional cultures is that spirits on the other side of the veil have seven times as much clarity as we do. So it's a good idea to pray to your ancestors for guidance. Go ahead and chant. Use the sound of ho to call them down and use the sound of ah to open your heart and make yourself more receptive. And then the next part probably is the hardest part. You have to shut up and listen and just work on staying open to gratitude. You know, the first day when I go out on the water in the springtime, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. It always happens. It's like I've come through another winter. I can feel the guidance that I'm getting from the spirits of the plants and from my Father's spirit. And I'm just happy to be alive on the water doing the work again. Does that make sense? That's beautiful, Larch. Thank you so much for that story. That's, that's, that's lovely. It sounds like being on the water for you is like such an inspirational place to, to be on that, on that ocean water. That's, just, that's great. Thanks. Thank you so much for that story. Yeah, um, well, uh, one of the, one of the things I wanted water, to ask... You know. okay, go what's ahead. that? Go ahead. Well, I was going to ask you about um, one of the things that... Um, intrigues me about seaweed is the mineral content and how uh, what I, from being a gardener for many years and, you know, working on farms back in the early days and all of that, but one of the things that, that kind of came up early on was how important minerals are and how, you know, so many of the soils, because of our agricultural practices, have become depleted of minerals and that, you know, because, you know, we don't always have a strong component of minerals, you know, even in the trace minerals too, that it's so important. And so I know you, I know you have uh, something lovely to say about minerals and seaweed. So I'm just kind of curious about your take on all of that um, and the minerals. Okay. And yeah, okay. I'd love to hear about that. <laughs> well, Let's go back to my father. He was a county okay. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. he had something to say about minerals. <laughs> well, he was a county extension agent. He taught vocational agriculture to high school kids. Then he went to World War II, and then he came back, and he was working with farmers during the Eisenhower administration in Minnesota. And the message was a very cruel message to small farmers. It was, get big, or die. And he understood that a lot of the practices that were being 
proposed. We're going to destroy the soil. We're going to make the soil more acidic. The chemical fertilizers were very harsh. And sometimes he would look at me and he would say, you know, I should have just been a simple farmer. Well, I read a book by Sir Albert Howard. It was called Farmers of 40 Centuries. And there's a description of a Chinese terrace farm. And when you look at a photo of a Chinese terrace farm, there's always some place in that series of terraces where the water is running down the mountainside. There's a collection pool at the bottom. Or sometimes it's part way up. Sometimes there'll be a hog pen with a slatted floor right over a pond. Or it might be the poultry shed with a slatted floor right over the pond. And in the pond, there's carp, because carp can live in really mucky water. And every 10 years, the farmer will drain the pond, and he'll haul the muck up to the highest terrace. And then the rainwater cycle brings all those nutrients down through all the terraces, down to the muck pond, down to the bottom. Well, one day I'm harvesting seaweed, and I realize I'm at the bottom of the watershed, and the seaweeds are collecting all the minerals that are being washed down from the upper terraces. And what I'm doing is I'm shipping those minerals upstream by UPS and U.S. mail. And some people are putting the minerals into their bloodstream directly. They're eating the plants. And some people are taking my seaweeds and using it on the garden. But really all I'm doing is schlepping seaweeds back up to the highest terrace. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> now, so when, what... you get the, when you get the minerals in your bloodstream, what happens is it buffers the acidity. So in general, people who feel stressed out or feel acidic will start to feel more rested and more alkaline. They'll have better reserves. That's the best way I can say it. Because if people are acidic all the time, what will happen is the body will just take minerals out of the bones in order to balance the blood. It's like borrowing from your savings account. And that's the worst thing you can do because that's the beginning of osteoporosis. So if you can keep good mineral balance in your blood, you also are protecting your bones. Hmm. Okay. That's great. That's okay. great. Yes, that's um, that's a great tip. <laughs> um, so what about, have you done, um, I mean, I spent some time in Ireland, and one of the things that's so lovely that you can do pretty much, you know, in many different locations in Ireland, Ireland is do seaweed baths. And, oh, my gosh, I it's it's like an experience like none other. It, uh, you know, I having that experience and just like not only how incredibly good your skin feels and how silky soft your skin and your hair and everything afterwards, it's like, you know, it's very energizing. And, you know, as so I've talked to some people about that and trying to understand what's really going on. So so what's your take on seaweed baths? Do you do you... Do you, do you all do seaweed baths at home there? <laughs> I bet you do. <laughs> Look, um, 
and I'm going to have to say this, you know, uh, after being with seaweeds 12 to 16 hours a day during the seaweed season, it's like a hay season on the water. During May and June, I sleep about four hours, and then I'm back in seaweed again. I've got no choice. I, I just have to stay at the work. If low tide comes at 4 in the morning, the next day it comes at 5 in the morning, and the next day it comes at 6 in the morning. That's how it goes. So I've got this early morning schedule where I'm up at 3 in the morning, and I'm on the water at first light. And I'm working with a ton or two tons of wet seaweed. Well, what happens to my skin? My skin turns soft. Beautiful. But do I need to put it in my bathtub at night? No. <laughs> there's, there's okay, no, I hear you. That yeah. you're, you're, you're kind of sick of it by the end of the day? Is that well, what you're the, the, yeah, the end joke with night is, can we get through the morning without using the S word? No. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. But, but it does soften my skin, and mm -hmm. especially digitata kelp because the alginates in digitata come out of the seaweed as soon as it comes out of the water. This is one of those plants that has created the, the reputation for slime. You know, We're totally slimed. But that's the one you want to use in your bath. Digitata kelp is the one that's going to make your skin feel really good. And I've had you know, cosmetologists come here and they'll say, well, I'm using digitata and I'm using bladderwrack. And bladderwrack probably is what you were using in Ireland because of the gel that's in bladderwrack that's good for the skin. And it will lighten up dark patches in the skin. So those are the two that I tell people to, you know, go ahead and play with this. If you want to do thalassotherapy, which is wrapping the body uh, in the springtime and in the summer, we have full-length plants that we ship to people so they can wrap it around their body. If you just want to throw it in the tub, well, you can use just about anything. So what okay. about, so one of the things that, you know, I mean, I, I don't know about this because I've only, you know, I can count on one hand how many seaweed baths I've had in my life because I've only done this in Ireland. But, um, but what I hear is that the seaweeds actually draw out, draw out, um, I don't know what you might want to, I don't necessarily want to use the word toxins, but, but draw out that which is not in service to you, let's put it that way, in your body. Well, you, what do yeah, you think you about that? Well, you can do it that way. Um, if you're using kelp, any of the brown seaweeds, you're going to have sodium alginate going through your gut. And sodium alginate will form a bond with large molecules, with heavy metals and it will take it out of you. Now, the warning, of course, is that you've got to harvest kelp in a place that's relatively clean. My bay doesn't have harbors, doesn't have a town, doesn't have factories, so it's clean water. But if I hear Charles Yarish talking about seaweed grown in the Bronx River, and he's talking about growing it, for bioremediation, that's not kelp you want to eat. That's kelp you want to take to the landfill. Mm. So when you're buying seaweed, 
And when you're using seaweed, whether it's on your skin or internally, you better find out where it comes from and find out if your harvester really knows the water. What I find with most seaweed companies is that I'm met by a corporate front, and I never get to talk to the harvester. I never get to find out where my seaweed is coming from. I can buy seaweed that says Maine Coast Sea Vegetables, and then I can read the label, and it says Nori from China. Okay, fine. Now, can I talk to the Chinese harvester? No, that's where I've hit the wall. We're more, in this business, we're more like a CSA. In the summertime, we've got a dozen tent platforms with tents and air mattresses. This summer, we had 100 visitors. People who came, camped, went out in the boats with us, ate with us, talked to whoever was harvesting the seaweed. They got to see where it comes from. So this business is more like a CSA, where you get to talk to your farmer. And your farmer's coming up with a variety pack or a family pack, and he's saying, well, I'm going to give you in proportion to what nature gave me. And then you'll say something like, did you know this year that the ocean is warming up and the annual Alaria zone is getting narrow and there's less annual Alaria and there's more perennial Alaria and there's more Irish moss creeping down because the water's warming up? That's the kind of information you want to hear. You want to talk to somebody who's actually got his hands on the stuff. Hmm. So this this whole this whole idea about the you know at, we know we know the oceans becoming polluted in so many places um, on the planet. So this is I mean it's alarming of course it's very alarming and and uh, there's probably I mean I don't know if how many places there are in the world that that have waters that are still like you say that are are clean enough to be harvesting seaweeds from. Um, and All right. Well, here's something that people don't understand. I'm working with the Gulf of Maine. And if you go 200 miles offshore, you come to underwater mountain ranges that come within 15 feet of the surface at low tide. That's kind of hard to think of, but that, that's what it is. It's what we call the continental shelf. Now, this system is bounded from the hook on Cape Cod up through Maine and then through New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, and that's 70% of the perimeter of the Gulf of Maine. And then the other 30% is those underwater mountain ranges that come within 15 feet of the surface. This creates a system of currents and a system of salinity gradients that are separate from the Atlantic Ocean. Did you know that? No, I did not know that. I'm not working with the Atlantic Ocean. I'm working with the Gulf of Maine. So Hmm. when I asked my father, the navigator, to steer me for a lifetime of work, I got sent to an enclosed body of water that's somewhat separate from the Atlantic Ocean. 
Not too much has changed. What I've noticed the most in 45 years is that, yes, it is warming up. And as it's warming up, some things are shifting. Some of the zones are shifting. And there is more acidity. And that means that shellfish are having a harder time. We still have shellfish, but we don't have the same abundance. So I don't see soft-shell clams, and I don't see mussels in the abundance that I saw 45 years ago. Those are changes. There's nothing I can do about that. Hmm. As for pollution, my bay, when I look across it, my bay has a shoreline when I look across that's three miles long, running north to south. And in the wintertime, I see four lights. And those people looking across at my shore see four lights. That means there are four families living in this one-mile stretch of road called Wilderness Shores. And south of me, for a mile and a half, is uninhabited. And north of Wilderness Shores is uninhabited. In the summertime, yeah, it's busy. There are people on the shore. I get most of my work done before the lobster season starts. When I'm working on the bay in May, I've got the bay to myself. There's nobody out there. In June, about midway through June, the fishermen are starting to come in and set lobster traps. They're tracking the lobster from the deep water up into the bay in the summertime. But I'm going to the outside of the islands. So I really don't work around lobster men. We kind of wave to each other, but we're going different directions. And by the end of June, my work is done. I've got 80% of the harvest dried and in storage. And then in July, I'll go to the most wild places, way out at the tips of the peninsulas, harvesting digitata, kelp, and finishing up working in the surf. And by the end of July, I'm at home with visitors, and then I spend my time taking people on the boats just to show them the seals and the birds and the islands. So you people who are listening to this, if you want to come visit, just get in touch. And in July and August, you can go for a boat ride with me and camp with us. There's no charge for an overnight stay or a weekend stay. Wow, that's very... Um... That's very generous and accommodating of, of you and your wife. Tell, tell, I know you're, you've been together with your wife for how many years now? Well, I met Nina over seven years ago on Match.com. Oh, and really? we wrote back and forth, and I realized that she and I had a sacred contract. The talk between us was, oh, Nina, you're a photographer. I'm at a point where I need to write and educate people. I'm an educator at heart. So we did a cookbook, and the cookbook is all Nina's photography of all the dishes, all the food, and I wrote some of my philosophy in the beginning, and then, you know, 50, 60 recipes. It's spiral bound, so it'll lay flat on the uh, counter in the kitchen, and we sold 1,000 copies, and we're happy with it, and there's two more cookbooks now in the work, so this is part of the work we're doing together. Hmm. And then we're in transition. This place is also going to be a retreat center. So 
that's really my winter work right now is building a second kitchen on first floor to accommodate 12 people when they come to visit. And when we have the Wednesday night supper club, we're teaching children how to garden and grow food and prep it for the adults. And we'll be seating 30 people for the Wednesday night supper club. So I'm spending my winter doing a little bit of travel, but mostly a lot of carpentry. Wow, I can't wait to come visit. I'm so excited now. <laughs> <laughs> let's, um, Larch, let's see if there's anybody um, on our call who might have a question that they might want to ask you. So any sure. of our callers, in order to uh, for me to unmute you so that you can um, speak with Larch, uh, you need to press star 5 on your phone, and then I'll see a little hand go up, and then I can unmute you so that you can um, ask a question or make a comment. or So I'm just going to see here. Somebody out there must have something to ask Larch. <clears throat> I see that Alicia, you are on this call. Oh, see there? I knew you'd have something to ask. Okay, we're going to unmute Alicia. Okay, Alicia, you're on. Hi, Pam. Hi. I was trying to fish my phone out of the pocket when you said you saw me. <laughs> do you have a question um, for Large? Something you'd like to ask him or comment? or? Yes, I do. First of all, um, Lars, I just want to say I so enjoyed listening to your stories today. They're really um, beautiful, and your depth of knowledge for seaweed and, and life um, is really touching. And, um, and I was really curious. I mean, you spend so much quiet time in your bay and on the water, and it's obvious to me that you really um, love the place that you are. And I just wondered if you could elaborate more about how you feel about your land and your ocean there and, and what your relationship is um, with that aspect of your life. The relationship with what, the ocean? Yeah, with the ocean. And I mean, we've spoken a lot about the scientific properties of seaweed, but um, I've looked at your blog a few weeks ago and stuff, and it's very... I mean, there's a poetic aspect to the photography and to your writing. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm becoming a storyteller. Um, when my oars are in the water, I feel my oars connecting to all the oceans. That's the image mm -hmm. that I'm working with. I, I talked about the Gulf of Maine as being kind of a separate system. But really the feeling I have is that every time I sweep my oars, I'm touching all the water of this planet. Mm. That's how it feels. Mm -hmm. And that sense goes back to a time when I was going to school in San Francisco learning structural body work, and somebody came up to me who taught shiatsu at the school and she said, I'm part of a circle of healers. And we get mm -hmm. together with a homeopathic physician named Gurudas. And he's asking questions of Kevin Ryerson, who's a channel. And Kevin is channeling Dr. Bach, 
of the Bach flower mm-hmm. remedies. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have a new book that will give us all the flower essences for the American continent. Mm-hmm. Now, I was just a typist who was typing the book. I would listen to tapes of the sessions. And at mm-hmm. the end of the session, Kevin channeled John. And people in the group said, this is John who Jesus asked to stay behind and work with the earth. And every time John would give a benediction at the end of a session, the hair would stand up on the back of my neck. Mm. And that's always a signal that I'm in the presence of something that's paranormal and much beyond my limited sense capacities. Mm-hmm. So the feeling was, I am in an enormous room that has no boundaries, no edge, with very old souls mm-hmm. who are working with the earth. And I get to hear John, I get to hear Dr. Brock, and I get to hear Tom. But beyond that, I could feel there was so much energy. Mm -hmm. So I have that same sense when I work on the ocean that there's a lot of energy, a lot of plant consciousness, a lot of Mm -hmm. ocean consciousness. And I don't think near far anymore. I can't tell Mm -hmm. where near and far is. The Tibetans have an image that they use for teaching. They say, if you take a crystal ball and roll it across a colored tablecloth, it looks like the colors from the tablecloth are inside the crystal ball. Mm-hmm. We are like this. You really can't tell where inside and outside is. That's what I'm like. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Larch, for that. Um, that was beautiful, that description. Uh, is there anyone else that has a question or a comment with Larch? If so, just press star 5. April, I see that you're on this call. Now you and Larch have something in common, both being storytellers and both you living on having just moved not too long ago from Martha's Vineyard. There must be something fishing around there inside you. No pun intended. Do you have a question or a comment for for Larch? April? Hey, bro. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> hey, bro. <laughs> All right. She's going to okay. be shy today. All right. Um, you know, well, we have... March, how would you like to, um, would you, oh, wait a minute. Hang on. She's decided that she's got something for you. Hang on. Okay, April, you are, you are okay. on the line. 
it just took me a long time to figure out how to actually do that. You know, press star five. You know me. I'm a little <laughs> <laughs> oh, so with technology. <laughs> but uh, yes, um, I I love this talk, and it's very um, very different than I imagined it would be. Um, I love your whole sensibility to the life of the ocean and the beings of the plants. And um, as you were talking, well, two things came up for me, and you could talk about either one if you want. Um, one was about the, the little animals that are, I don't know what little and great animals um, feed off the seaweed, and I'm curious about that. And the other thing is um, this whole concept of it being one ocean. And oh, when you were talking about Fukushima and the Pacific Ocean, that was such a, a sad thing that, you know, you don't want to even eat seaweed from that whole ocean or fish from there and okay. is there something something okay. healing that we can do about that yeah um, one of the things I want to say are you, are you hearing me okay yes okay um, after being a seaweed business I left the main seaweed council, which was a whole bunch of seaweed businessmen, because they were saying a whole bunch of stuff that just wasn't true. And I wrote another website that's called mainseaweedharvesters.org so that I could talk and develop my own voice apart from the main seaweed council, which was putting a lot of commercial spin on seaweed. When I go down to the shore, the first zone of plants I come to, the locals call it rockweed. And rockweed is 10% bladderwrack and 90% ascophyllum nodosum. That's what most of us call rockweed. Rockweed is a slow-growing seaweed. It only grows three or four inches per year. In other words, it takes about 10 years. It takes a decade for rockweed to get three feet tall. And at that point, it's just a little round bush. It grows for another 10 years, and then it looks like a maple tree with an overarching canopy. So after two decades, rockweed is finally functioning as secure habitat for the other 150 species that depend on rockweed as habitat for food and shelter. Now, the state of Maine says that you can cut rockweed at 16 inches. That, I'm here to say, is simply not right. Because what you're doing is you're taking two decades of growth and you're taking 90% of the biomass. Because once rockweed has become that overarching habitat, 
half of its biomass is in the upper third of the plant, just like a maple tree carries its biomass way up there, high up in the sky. So this is like going into an old-growth forest. When you're looking at rockweed that's six feet tall, it took 20 years to become that. The state of Maine is allowing a Canadian company called Acadia Sea Plants to hire local people to come in and harvest rockweed. And the equipment that they're giving them is a rake with a guard that's set at five inches off bottom. And a lot of these harvesters are taking the long handle off the rake and they're tying a rope to it so that they have no depth control whatsoever. And they're throwing the rake at the rockweed and hauling back. And they're hauling in five tons in one low tide. This is rape of the shoreline. This is loss of habitat. This is why I went and wrote another website, mainseaweedharvesters.org. So take a look. There's three sections talking about rockweed and the fact that rockweed belongs to the entire planet. It is part of the commons. It doesn't belong to the upland shoreland owner. It is part of the commons. And when we finally start to understand how slow it grows and we start to regulate it as a community of gardeners who look at rockweed as a slow-growing plant, then we're going to treat it very differently. So I took some time to write about this. I can't explain it all to you right now in this short time, but I just wanted you to know where the information is at mainseaweedharvesters.org. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Large. Um, thanks for that. Um, uh, we're getting close to, let me just see here. Um, I'm going to unmute you, April. Do, do now you can talk to Larch. I had you muted there. Um, was there I, I think what I heard you also ask Larch is who, who is it that's feeding on the seaweed? Is that what that was one of your questions, April? Yeah. Oh, I think yeah, and I think he was talking about how the seaweed becomes a um, a home for a lot right. of. Cr cr but um, I don't know. 